The EV material space keeps rolling with another big M&A, and the world's largest jewelry company tells the diamond miners to drop dead. Welcome to Kick a Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. That's a, that's a crazy way to start this roundtable, but uh, happy Friday, everybody. That was pretty harsh. <laughs> Kick a correspondent, Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, good afternoon. And if you're listening to this, you probably know all about ESG and carbon emissions and miners trying to be green. It's the main reason why Pandora Jewelers and the Diamond Miners are no longer working together. Our next guest is providing to solve the difficult problem of third-party verification and carbon emissions. It's Mark Fellows at Scarn Associates. Hello, Mark. Hi. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Mark, what is Scarn and what do you do? So, um, Scarn Associates is a, uh, a research business that we um, really created uh, 12 months ago, and our background is as mineral economists, so we're career mining analysts. But we decided that ESG and the way that that's measured really needed looking at by a bunch of guys who understood how a mining operation works, uh, because we felt that um, right now the... Uh, the way that ESG is looked at, it's, it's very often looked at by the same people who look at policy and governance and all of those things, and not necessarily people with a technical background. So we're, we're looking at um, particularly things like carbon emissions and water usage from a very um, uh, operationally literate mining industry perspective, quantifying those things and benchmarking them and uh, using that as a means to to, to kind of measure mining companies' progress in terms of uh, reducing their environmental impacts. And that, that's what we do in a nutshell. We are going to talk ESG, carbon emissions later in the podcast, but first we start with the metal of the week, copper. The metal hit an all-time high today. Reuters reports that three-month copper at LME hit 10232 a ton. Niels, in your Bank of America write-up earlier this week, the bank had copper at 13000 or even high as 20000 The bank noted LME warehouses are at a lowest level in 15 years and that added stocks could currently cover only 3.3 weeks of demand. So yeah, so Bank of America, you know, they see a supply deficit of 186,000 tons for this year. Uh, that's going to double next year. Uh, they say that the only thing that's really going to save the market right now is recycling. And if and if recycling uh, in the copper market, the, that secondary market doesn't come through, then uh, prices could go up as high as twenty thousand dollars per ton. So it's it's. It's fascinating. It, this this supply crunch in the copper market is just amazing. There was uh, there was an article in the FT today in which Glencore, the head of Glencore, said uh, the copper price needs to go up another fifty percent for uh, supply to meet demand. Wow. Uh, the uh, International Copper Study Group uh, is taking another side of that. Uh, they're forecasting that global refined copper surplus of about 80,000 tons. That's a slight, um, how would you say that's a slight surplus, but 80,000 tons for 2021 and 111,000 tons for 2022. Uh, that's primarily due to an end to supply disruptions and several new major mines that are coming online to add to the supply. Friedland's uh, massive Camo is expected to start production within the month, and the ICGS is listing about five major copper mines altogether that are going to be starting this year. Niels, there was also a jobs report. Um, was there? I was there. 
is <laughs> I don't think a lot of people want to talk about the jobs right. So this is this is the 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 fascinating thing about economics. Um, economists can say whatever they want, and there's no repercussions. They were expecting uh, a million jobs to be created. Some estimates were as high as like over two million jobs to be created in April. Uh, we got two hundred and sixty-six thousand jobs created uh, last month. So it's the big, it's the second biggest miss uh, in estimates uh, in in the the the, the report's history. Um, so and and this just like this like everybody heading into this report, everybody's saying you know the economy's on fire, you know building up full steam, employment's uh, racing back, everybody's getting jobs. Um, you know, there was even talk of, you know, the, the, the market overheating. I mean, Yellen, you know, sort of, she, she outstepped her bounds uh, on Tuesday and said that, you know, the, the interest rates might have to go up to stop the economy from overheating. She did walk uh, some of those stuff back. But I mean, she, she's saying what a lot of people are thinking that, you know, uh, the, the economy is, is, is overheating and we might have to taper as, as early as the end of this year. Um, that's kind of gone off the table, and this is why we saw gold up. Uh, gold's ending the week with you know three percent gains, best week uh, this year, best week since uh, early November. Um, and yeah, right now there's there's not a lot in the way for gold market. I think we're you're, you know we're going to start seeing markets pricing in higher inflation and lower uh, bond yields, and that means uh, uh, lower real yields. I help me out with that again, Neil. So uh, we did have the move uh, to the higher uh, for gold, I think about uh, midweek or Thursday when it uh, kind of broke out uh, decisively out of the 1800 range. So what is the story going forward? So if we have a weak jobs report, uh, there will not be inflationary pressure. So what uh, what are they accounting for in terms of precious metals going higher? Well, actually, I think I think there still is inflationary pressures. Uh, the wage growth in the employment report actually increased uh, uh, 7% month over month uh, for the year up, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, seven-tenths of a percent, um, up uh, uh, three-tenths of a percent for the year. Uh, and that's part of it. You know, like some people, so some people are saying that, um, you know, American workers are staying home because uh, they get more money for uh, going on uh, unemployment insurance than they are working. And that's causing this, this labor shortage. So, so, Wages have to go up, um, but I do think you know what this employment does. It's 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 sort of the the opposite of yes. It's it's not super inflationary, but uh, inflation is coming. We saw this week. We saw uh, both manufacturing and service sector data uh, showing inflationary pressures. In, input costs are rising. That's going to eventually uh, trickle down to to the consumer. Um, and, you know, so so inflation is there. But what this really does is it relieves pressure on the Fed that they don't have to tighten anytime soon. You know, so, I mean, this is this is what's going to happen. You know, so everybody was expecting, OK, a million jobs. This is just the start of a big domino effect. And, you know, they're going to have to set it up at, at Jackson Hole in, in August that they're going to start tapering by the end of the year. This was the narrative that was happening um, as early as, uh, you know, at, on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, even Thursday, you know, inflation was inflation was was heating up. The economy is heating up. 
Um, that completely came off the table. Some people are still saying, well, this is an anomaly. You know, by the time we get summer, you know, we're going to start seeing job uh, jobs pick up again and, and um, all of this stuff. I don't, I don't necessarily know. Um, Yellen actually came out this afternoon with some interesting statistics. She said that um, 2 million women um, have left the workforce because they can't afford um, childcare services. You know, so you're not going to get a lot of people going back to the work if they don't, if schools aren't open, if, you know, they don't have um, daycare for their kids, you know, they, 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 they can't, they actually, they literally can't afford to work. Daycare costs are so expensive that it's cheaper just to stay at home. So a lot of people are actually saying maybe we won't see the job growth until September when, when school gets back in. So, I mean, now we're heading into the summer, you know, are we going to have day camps? Are we going to have, you know, summer camps, you know, what happens with pandemic? So it's, the the labor market is definitely in an influx and, and economists just don't really know how to price this all in, which is which is really interesting. And I think you're going to get a lot of volatility going forward between estimates and actual forecasts and, and, and the actual data. Now, I'm going to guess we had a good weekly uh, gold survey. Uh, yes. So uh, again, so three weeks ago. No, no, no bulls or no bears in the marketplace. Last week, no bulls in the marketplace. This week, no neutrals in the marketplace. No fence sitters. Um, but yeah, uh, we had uh, uh, 16, 14 out of 16 uh, analysts surveyed. Uh, so 88% are bullish on gold for next week. Um, and uh, that's, I think it's 75%, 76% of uh, retail investors are bullish for next week. Interesting though, like so, gold has seen a really solid breakout, healthy breakout above uh, eighteen hundred. The only problem is that there's going to be lots of resistance between sort of eighteen thirty and eighteen fifty. A lot of people I've been talking to say, you know, gold's two hundred day moving average comes in around eighteen fifty one. That's going to be a big level of resistance. Um, if you want a really good momentum trade. Uh, in gold, you really have to get above that. Um, so what we what we could have done is entered maybe a new trading range. Maybe for the summer we consolidate between 18, 1850, something like that. Maybe even uh, 1750 and 1850. Who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, it, there's definitely strong renewed sentiment in the marketplace. A lot of it uh, because of inflation. Uh, you had a really interesting story. Uh, Sam Zell, billionaire. Uh, uh, investor, he's actually buying gold for the first time because uh, he he wants that inflation hedge. You can find the weekly gold survey on Kiko homepage. We run the Kiko weekly gold survey every Friday. Let's turn to exploration and developers. Paul, Colin Cattell's newfound gold is on quite a run. Yes, uh, Newfound Gold put out their best drill intercept to date at the Keat Zone. It's Queensway Gold Project in Newfoundland in Canada. Uh, that's seen the, the company's market capitalization pass $1 billion Canadian. The stock rose uh, about 8% on two consecutive days, taking its valuation up to you know, $1.2 billion. As the company reported, an assay of 17.7 meters grading 124.4 grams per tonne. The company has a 200,000 meter 
drilling program underway at Queensway uh, in what it believes is a, a deposit that bears similarity to Kirkland Lake, sorry, Kirkland Lake Gold's Fosterville mine in Victoria, in Australia. And um, the drilling at Queensway is also lifting the stock of its next door neighbour, which is Labrador Gold, which is now uh, has recently hit a 52-week high. I reached out to call an email to say that the Queensway project was acquired in early 2016 following a trip to Newfoundland by himself and co-founder Denny Laviolette. And we've had uh, Denny on the show before. Uh, Denny, of course, is involved uh, with uh, Goldspot, uh, who has been uh, featured uh, by Kiko. And then Colin has also uh, worked with uh, Kiko uh, with his Palisade Global. Uh, over the next three years, from the 2016, uh, Colin emailed to say that him and Denny raised several million dollars applied geophysics to it. Uh, the company's first drill hole was in 2019. And then you've had the IPO and the company's market cap is now in an excess of $1 billion US dollars. That just shows how these things can kind of hit and they can kind of hit quickly in this business. BlackRock continues to expand its Tonopa West, Paul. Well, I would have said Tonopah West, but there we go. Um, yeah, Black Park <laughs> Silver intercepted a high-grade uh, silver step-out drilling there at uh, Tonopah West, which is in the Walker Lane district of Nevada in the USA. And this struck me as one of the perhaps the, the most eye-catching intercepts this week. And um, highlights there: 1.5 meters grading 16 grams per ton gold, and 1,722 grams per ton silver for 3,322 grams per ton silver equivalent so um, you know good going there for blackrock what happened at uh, marimaca marimaca copper is uh, one of the more exciting uh, copper exploration development stories uh, in, in chile um, their stock has gone up considerably over the past 12 months uh, corporate turnaround new management all of those good things um, recent drilling has extended mineralization below their marimaca copper oxide deposit uh, which is near antofagasta in chile um, Drilling intersected down dip and long strike extensions. Um, the highlights there are 38 meters grading 0.3% copper and 106 meters grading 0.39% copper. Why is it interesting, Paul, that Angle Gold Ashanti upped its interest in Jeffrey Pontius's Carver's Gold? Well, ever since I first spoke with Jeffrey about the project many, many years ago, the, the, the goal of the company has always been to sell. And it seems that that may be getting much, much closer to reality. Angler Gold Ashanti entered into a 20 million US dollar loan agreement with the company to fund ongoing permitting and pre-development work at its uh, North Bullfred project in Nevada in the USA, um, as well as ongoing exploration at the Motherlode Deposit and Linda Strip projects. Angler Gold currently owns about 19.7% of Corvus and is exploring the neighboring Silicon project. The company has a 90-day exclusivity period to review Corvus, during which time Corvus will not be entertaining calls or anything from any other potential suitors. Uh, Corvus, uh, their executive team, contains many former Angler Gold Ashanti employees, including Jeffrey Pontus, as you mentioned, but also executive chair Ron Largent. And it's also, uh, it's work program in recent years has been, um, one could say, has been aimed at making the company irresistible to Angler Gold Ashanti. Recently, um, it focused on its 2020 Linda Strip discovery, which is a narrow band of land sandwiched between Silicon to the north and Core Mining's Sterling project to the south. Um, drilling has encountered broad zones of leachable oxide gold with intercepts such as 205 metres, grading 1.36 grams per tonne, as well as high-grade 
vein mineralization. And Corvus has also been working on expanding its mother load deposit, which is immediately west of silicon, um, looking to identify potential new large gold zones at depth. And mother load has a PEA outlining average production of 171,000 so 171, ounces for eight years. So it seems uh, that the company's coming close to getting the, the, an acquisition over the line. Pandora Diamonds announced Tuesday it will no longer use mined diamonds. Instead, it will use lab-created diamonds. Pandora said it is a number one jewelry brand in the world with over 85 million pieces of jewelry sold and 26,000 employees. In 2020, the company had $3 billion in sales. The company said that lab-grown diamonds help the company meet its goals for carbon neutrality and ethically sourced materials. The lab-grown diamonds also cost less. Niels. Um, this is actually really interesting because uh, last year they also announced that they were only going to use uh, recycled precious metals, gold and silver, in the marketplace. Uh, you know, to to reduce their um, their uh, to, to reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, so it's it, not surprising, but it is like you know, um, telling miners and, and diamonds to to take a hike is is very interesting. Well, uh, Paul. I think we've got a, a unique segue into Mark as well, because I can't remember the name of the company, but there is a company out there that's looking at um, sequestering atmospheric carbon and creating synthetic diamonds from that. Uh, uh, I, I think also that, uh, sorry, uh, go ahead. Mark? No, I was going to, I was going to say, I, I, I just can't, uh, well, I, I, I struggle to see how that's going to be massive quantities of carbon um, unless they're going to be growing very large diamonds and making them very cheap so that everybody can afford to buy them. But, you know, um, maybe I'm missing something there. I don't know, Paul. I mean, maybe you know a bit more than I do. Well, just to- are, you, uh, are you going to be wheeling out a uh, diamond the size of a fridge when uh, people get uh, married and then uh, that will have all your carbon sequestration that will be in that diamond right there? Um, I, I will say uh, just regarding uh, Pandora, uh, there's a question mark just uh, regarding how many uh, actually uh, mined diamonds they're actually consuming. But um, it was a notable story just kind of giving their extreme brand and uh, their, um, their large known area in the space. Uh, Niels. Well, I think, and maybe Mark can, can touch on this, but it just, it shows just how big ESG is, is playing in, in the marketplace. I mean, it's, it's more of like, like you say, maybe it's more of just a headline, but the fact is, is that it's, it's attracting attention. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I what I know about Pandora is, is not that much, but I do know that those guys are really good at marketing. They're really good at placing themselves just in the right position for the people they want to sell to. And they've obviously detected something in their consumer base to, to prompt them to do this. And we are, we're going to see a lot more of it. But it's kind of like um, planting trees to offset carbon emissions. There's a bit of a limit to the extent to which you can, you can make progress by doing that if you actually do want to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's, it's also quite similar to the idea of uh, using only recycled precious metals. Well, um, that's a that's a limited pool of metal. Um, obviously, with something like gold, where you have massive um, stocks sat in central bank vaults relative to annual jewelry consumption, then arguably, yes, you could you know get by for an awful long time if you could release some of that gold. But we all know it's not that simple. 
and for other metals where recycling rates are already, in some metals it's already quite efficient in terms of the amount of metal which is recycled. And I, I'm thinking of, say, silver, I mean, and gold as well. I mean, the recycling rates are, are really quite high. Um, it, 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 while markets are still growing overall in terms of consumption, um, that, that recycling thing just doesn't, doesn't work um, as, the, as the absolute answer to these questions. Going back to the start of your answer, uh, Mark, um, I, you know, you are right uh, regarding uh, Pandora being good at marketing, and uh, they certainly did uh, grab the headlines uh, in the in the major news publications in the middle of the week. Uh, Paul, there was big M and A action, and uh, swing back to the EV space. Yes, it's in, in some ways it's a similar uh, situation as with with Corvus, where a bigger company is suggesting it's going to. Uh, do, do a takeout, although it's not there yet. Um, here, the, the companies are Bacanora Lithium, uh, which says it's entered into an agreement with China's Zhengfeng Lithium regarding a possible cast offer for Zhengfeng to buy out the, the, the Bacanora shares it doesn't already own at um, a 50% premium. Bacanora and Zhengfeng uh, each hold 50% of the Sonora Lithium project in Sonora, Mexico. Um, that's the um, Bacanora has begun early site work there. Um, they raised about $65 million earlier this year. Uh, and the aim of the partners there is to produce between 17,000 and 35,000 tonnes a year of lithium carbonate with first battery grade lithium expected in 2023. Um, Genfeng has a 50% offtake there and Japanese commodities trading house Hanwha uh, has the offtake for the other 50%. There's been a spate of M&A deals in the EV space. The metals company going public, that is the Deep Sea Ocean Miner, and its $2.9 billion SPAC deal. In April, lithium miners, Orocobre and Galaxy Resources, merged to create the world's fifth largest global lithium chemicals company. That was a merger that was valued in Australian $4 billion. I think that's a good place to bring you in, Mark. Uh, if I'm an investor and I'm somebody that cares about ESG, and I see one of those sustainability reports on a company's website. How do I read it? What information is in there? Well, that's a really great question. And, and my response to that is the problem with those reports is that they really lack context. It's all very well a company telling you what its own emissions or what its own performance in terms of reinvesting in local communities or how few or how many people they're maiming or killing every year uh, in the course of their operations. That's fine. But if you can't benchmark that relative to their peers, their competitors, and um, the, 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 the global industry as a whole, it really does lack anything to allow you to say, well, okay, that's good or that's not very good. And, and that was really the premise behind our, um, our business was that somebody needed to collate all of these numbers, make sure that they're consistent, fill in the gaps, and ultimately forecast, um, particularly uh, things which are driven by technical drivers like um, emissions being driven by energy inputs. Um, and somebody needed to do that in a very consistent way across um, uh, as broad a spectrum of m individual mining assets as we possibly could. And that was really the whole premise behind our, uh, our business at SCARM. And um, 
what we do is we drill down to the asset level. So in many cases, companies will provide you with a, a company total figure for, say, their carbon emissions or their water usage, but they might not necessarily split that down into the individual mining operations. Um, we go to quite um, extreme lengths to arrive at the best possible estimates if um, the companies are not publishing those mine-by-mine numbers. And we've got all sorts of benchmarks and engineering rules of thumb that we use to um, figure out what the actual energy usage is likely to be, given what we know about the location of an operation, its scale, the mining method, the process method, um, the, the hardness of the ore, where does the electricity come from, how big are the trucks if it's an open pit. Um, all of that stuff allows you to essentially estimate with quite a high degree of accuracy, even if the company themselves are not reporting those um, granular numbers. And obviously, we also reconcile to the corporate stated totals, um, making sure that our breakdown actually reconciles. We've got the company's stating as a total. And of course, we speak to the companies. Um, The companies um, are are approaching us, obviously, because our name is um, getting out there now and people are, are very interested in our carbon intensity benchmarking curves and the first question a mining company always asks us is can we can you show us where our operations sit on your curves and um, usually the, num- the the response comes back that we we've, we've done a good job but um, yeah the, the whole point is context and being able to um, to, to, to benchmark things um, and and if you just pick up a a loan company's um, sustainability report, it probably isn't going to allow you to do that. It, they're always interesting how untethered they are when you see them within mm. a uh, company's uh, newsfeed because, uh, you know, you're so used to consuming all the financial information and uh, never mind uh, what they're doing on drilling. And then you can just compare all of those numbers. But uh, the sustainability reports, they just kind of sit alone. Uh, Paul? I guess it's only a matter of time. You know, most investors uh, understand that, you know, if you're, you're all in sustaining cost of producing gold is $1,000 an ounce, you know, they have a, a view on whether that's good or bad. Um, but it's only a matter of time before the community gets that kind of understanding about uh, CO2 emissions. Um, Mark, what, what, what metals do you cover? I mean, it's, it's gold, it's copper, aluminum, nickel. What, what else? Uh, metallurgical coal, iron ore and zinc. Um, currently, so a big chunk of the of the commodity space, um, and we've obviously focused on the metals with the highest market value, the metals which are uh, essentially a- attracting the most attention from the financial institutions and investors. Um, so far, we haven't tackled the um, battery metals um, simply because, in, in in actual fact, those markets are still quite small. Um, but obviously, at some point in the future, we will do. Um, but so far, we've focused on the big markets, and obviously, copper and nickel um, are, are huge in financial terms. And the other thing is, those 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 metals themselves are, are obviously inputs into um, the electric vehicle market. And one of the things we're seeing, uh, one of the, the the areas we're getting a lot of interest from, is the um, the companies developing new nickel projects who want to demonstrate that they have some of the lowest carbon intensity uh, associated with their nickel product because they need to show that in order to get offtake agreements with the vehicle manufacturers. 
So um, it, it is quite a substantial um, driver of interest in what we do, for sure. Niels and then Paul. Um, I, I guess the, the, the question that the, I have so many questions actually, because I just I find this topic really, really fascinating. But uh, top of mind is our companies listening to you like you know when, when you come in when you give them your report and you say you need to do this 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 you need to reduce your water you need to you know try to try to go solar or you need to whatever um are companies listening to you or is it more just just lip service like i just i want to know how serious companies are taking their stewardship responsibilities well i think we've we've we have gone through a are we going through a, a transition from what was really um, greenwashing and companies trying to understand what they needed to do to a position now where this is being regarded as an engineering and financial problem that has to be addressed or else the sector will become uninvestable? And that's the reality because the major financial institutions are all under enormous pressure to show that they're investing their money in um, companies which are decarbonizing. So this is all being driven from, from, from that end. And whether you're a believer in man-made climate change or not is now entirely irrelevant if you're, if you're a mining company. You simply have to do something because otherwise big chunks of the market won't invest in you. And I know, for instance, say the, the gold space is, is, a, is, a, is a bit different. You know, a lot, a lot of the money at the junior end comes from uh, people who or institutions that maybe don't care too much. But actually, that's changing. You know, we are now talking to some of the big um, precious metal fund managers who, you know, I won't mention names, but we were slightly surprised that they have engaged with this so genuinely now. And um, it's, it's, it's not only becoming mainstream, it's becoming, um, it's becoming essential. And um, I think the argument is, is, is over. The big questions now are how much is it going to cost to achieve? And before we even get to that point, what technologies are going to be viable? Um, because although we can easily decarbonize electricity generation now and, and the costs of things like wind and solar and hydroelectric and nuclear are very, very competitive and getting, and in the case of those um, wind and solar, getting more competitive by the, by the, the year. The, the issue is, is, is really more about um, mobile equipment and those big um, haul trucks and all of the diesel that they consume, and, and what are we going to replace those with? But already there's some really interesting stuff happening. Um, it's probably going to be hydrogen um, combined with a fuel cell and a battery. Uh, it looks like Anglo-American are going to make that work imminently in uh, South Africa at Mogul Aquina. And I, I think from that point onwards, there'll be a, a real um, kind of um, acceleration in the adoption of this technology because all the major mining companies are, you know, they're all over this stuff now, genuinely. Um, uh, you, you, you used the word greenwashing uh, a moment ago, Mark, and I want to sort of dig a little bit deeper into that. I mean, 
I think in the past, some people were just putting out whatever it is and say, hey, we're environmentally friendly. Mm. Now it seems to be, um, I won't say deliberate, but um, um, a lot of companies have announced their, you know, their, their plans to be you know, carbon neutral or whatever by 2030 or 2040 or whatever they, uh, the, 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 their, their goal or benchmark is. And they've also been signing, you know, uh, PPAs with power utilities all over the place to, for renewable energy. But um, the reality is that on, on any given grid, you know, renewables are part of the supply, but that the base load is often coal or diesel or some other carbon based um, source of energy. So, um, I mean, is that greenwashing or is it they're just not necessarily cognizant of the fact that they're not really telling the truth? Uh, um, I like the way you asked that question, Paul, because um, I, I kind of, I could, I, I get a very strong feeling for where you, where you sit on that. But I, I'm actually a bit more um, um, forgiving, if you like, in that I think that there will be a really strong regulatory pressure to um, show that. Um, power purchase agreements are actually underpinned by genuinely low CO2 carbon in most, that's low CO2 electricity in, in, in most, you know, jurisdictions. I, I think um, there will be scandals. There will be um, instances where power companies are selling um, uh, low carbon electricity three times over and effectively substituting um, high carbon electricity on the quiet, but I, I I think there'll be far less of that than 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 you than you might fear, and um, so much of the world's mining industry is supplied by grid electricity rather than generating its own. Um, there's going to be tremendous demand. There already is tremendous demand, as you know, um, all over the world from mining companies of their grid providers to 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 provide them with low carbon electricity and um that it's happening you know i think there's certain countries where it's been very slow very frustrating for the miners such as south africa where everything is still um coal-fired uh, and escom are having its problems has been very slow to to react to that um but elsewhere in the world i think you know th- this is happening and it, it is a real thing um i know it's kind of difficult in that um, all of those electrons all go into the same grid and you can't be sure whether this electron came from a wind farm or from a, uh, a coal-fired power plant. But um, I, I think ultimately it will turn out to be the, a real thing, you know. Mark, uh, how good a picture can you get of carbon emissions uh, from a company that uh, you don't have access to? Uh, that uh, they're you're, they're just not uh, they're just not providing it, or you haven't formed a relationship that yet. But it's yeah. another company that you probably want to put on the curve. And then I think second would be the question is that uh, uh, do you see this evolving uh, to a state where it would be kind of like uh, financials, where you would actually would have you know a third party, and then you would have uh, how would you say standards and you know except it's industry standards like GAP in terms of how this is actually going to get yeah. reported. It's, it's happening. It's happening under the TCFD um, guidelines. It's, it's, it's getting written into um, uh, all of those um, reporting requirements for public companies all over the world. So it's, it's happening. Um, and um, that's one of the, the things that 
is driving demand for our services uh, for sure. Um, and I, I, um, I, I just see that you know happening day on day. Um, sorry, what was the what was the rest of the question there, Michael? I, I my mind wandered a little bit. So. Oh, it just uh, how uh, how well you can get a um, um, how well you can get an understanding of a company's uh, carbon right. emissions if you just don't happen to be working with them. Well, we th- that's one of the things we really enjoy doing because obviously, from our point of view, it's very interesting to come up with an estimate. And then try to get a reaction from the company themselves, not not by being you know willfully um, controversial, but um, quite often what will happen is we will um, engage with the company and say, "Hi guys, we'd be really interested if you could provide us with some more data," and they'll blank us. Um, but when we then go to them and say, "Okay, you didn't respond, but we came up with this estimate," very often they'll come back to us and they'll they'll start to then engage and say, "Well." How did you come up with that? And then we hope and usually are able to get within plus or minus, say, 10 or 15% anyway, um, simply because the engineering is the engineering. And if you know uh, a bit about, say, thinking about a gold operation, if you know um, what the scale of it is, you know what kind of size of equipment they're using, what the mining method is, a rough idea of the haul distances, what, what's the altitude. If it's a high-altitude operation, it'll be a lot less fuel efficient. If you know a few of those key things, what's the strip ratio? How much waste rock are they mining is a massive driver. And then if you know the ore hardness and the process method, you can figure out how much electricity they're likely to be using. And you, you, you'll, you, you'll also get good information from um, most... Um, uh, you know, re- government reporting in terms of what the grid electricity emission factor is. So uh, you you can come up with a pretty good estimate. Um, and I, I always find that um, challenging somebody with your own estimate of their numbers is a great way to open a conversation because they may not even have, have, have crunched the numbers themselves. It's maybe something they're meaning to get around to and just haven't yet. Um, but it, it, it's worked very well for us, to be honest. Um, and um, obviously, we are always very um, transparent about to what extent we're estimating um, and to what extent we're um, receiving actual numbers from, from companies. So we, we do, um, we, we're, we're very clear about that with our, with our clients. Um, but uh, yeah, it's always an interesting conversation. Niels, he had a question for Mark. Um, yeah, I sort of wanted to go back to to greenwashing a little bit. And I, I feel like maybe we're picking on the mining companies a, a little bit. But um, it does, like, part of it feels, though, like it, it's very, it's it's like a popularity contest. You know, like right now, all the focus is on decarbonization and, and you know, putting up solar panels and, and reducing diesel but I mean, like, you know, we don't necessarily really talk about, you know, things like water issues, uh, tailings, um, you know, all of this other stuff that, you know, so, like, you know, a company will, oh, hey, look, you know, we put up, you know, a million solar panels and, and, you know, but we have these terrible tailings. I just, I, you know, how does, how does that all get resolved? Like, you know, like it feels like yeah. we need to be taking more of a focus on the whole picture, water usage, tailings, all of this stuff. And community relations as, as well. Yeah, right. Really great question. And um, there is already a very, I would say, 
very imperfect solution being offered to to that question. And um, I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but I'm going to call out the the ratings agencies, the guys like True Cost and Sustainalytics and all of those guys, in that they will provide you with a a, a rating or a set of ratings for a, a company, and on a scale of whatever one to five, whether it's good or bad, on a whole bunch of those those metrics. But the problem is that those metrics tend to be spat out from some kind of black box model. And very often the the people producing those ratings don't really, they're not necessarily mining sector people. They're not necessarily that familiar with how a mine works. So they can't actually say, well, hold on, does this make sense or not? Because they don't necessarily understand how a mine works. And um, if you look at the variation in uh, ESG ratings from, say, four or five of the top ratings agencies for a given company, the variation that they give that company, uh, the ratings of that company that they each give can be massive. So it tells you that something's not quite right about that. And our response to that is, well, the only way you can do it is you have to drill down to the individual asset level. You have to make sure that whatever it is, whether it's energy, CO2, water, uh, tailings, actually you you've you've taken account of the underlying technical drivers and 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 satisfied yourself that it, it actually reconciles um and then you can aggregate it up into a, a company number and you can compare the companies on some kind of ranking which is what we do but you can't do it just by taking a bunch of sustainability reports and just scraping all the numbers out of those and then just mashing them together into some kind of rating it just doesn't work. Um, it gives um, investors something, and some investors say, well, okay, we know it's not perfect, but it's at least something we can use to answer that question you're asking, Nils. But what we're saying is there's something much better coming, uh, and we're developing it. Um, but to do that, we've got to work our way through a whole bunch of metrics, um, and uh, water is going to be the next one. Uh, and um, gradually build up that rating from the bottom up. And that's the way to do it, in, in my opinion. Uh, and in terms of what investors and society is interested in, we, we picked CO2 as our starting point for, for the reason that we, we, we did a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, an atmospheric test to see, I don't mean literally, I mean in terms of what, what people were talking about and concerned about, and CO2 was at the top of the list. And, and next after that is water. These seem to be the things that investors are interested in. Obviously, tailings suddenly leapt to the top of the agenda a couple of years ago when we had the, um, the Samarco tailings dam disaster in Brazil, and we had a bunch of um, investors really... Um, engage with that issue and prompt um, a whole bunch of work um, by the mining companies to um, kind of um, confess what um, issues they might have lurking in their tailing stamps. And, and I think likewise, we've seen a similar blip in interest with regard to um, cultural heritage sites after the Rio Tinto, um, Yulkan Gorge, uh, issue in uh, Australia where they blew up that um, uh, Australian that, that Aboriginal uh, historic monument. 
Um, and I, that's pushed that issue up the agenda as well. Um, so it, it's all it's all kind of bubbling up there. Um, and as I say, our contention is that it all needs to be properly measured at the asset level, and that should be the starting point. Well, and just like how how do you balance? Or I just want a quick follow up. Just like how do you balance it out? Like you know, a company that has really low carbon footprint but terrible water usage, <laughs> and you know, okay uh, community relations. Like what what kind of number do they get? Like where do they fall on the benchmark? You know, where's someone you know really great water usage, terrible carbon footprint, and you know, treats communities like dirt. I just you know like this this sounds fascinating to me. Well, this, this uh, ultimately where we're going, I believe, is some kind of um, um, environmental um, cost methodology. And these things already exist. The, 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 the environmental economists have um, already created these, um, and they, they tend to be quite academic. But um, it's possible to assign a value to anything, and you can assign a value to um, um, water pollution or air pollution. You can do it in terms of the cost to human longevity or the um, the cost to biodiversity in terms of species loss. And you can assign a dollar value to all of those things. And um, it's kind of analogous to a carbon tax. You know, we're assigning a dollar value to a ton of carbon. And it's quite possible that things may go that way. It's just that it's quite a difficult, complicated methodology to communicate to the guy on the street. Um, but it does actually stem from something quite interesting, which is this idea that for a long time, um, humanity has... Um, really not being paying the full cost of what it consumes. We are really relying on the planet to absorb all of this unmet cost. And that's going to come back and really cause us problems. And one way to address it is for, for instance, commodity markets and also the value of anything manufactured or consumed to be rebalanced to cover the costs of um, either putting the environment right or or not damaging it in the first place. And it's arguable that's what we're seeing happening now. It could be we're seeing a big readjustment in commodity prices, partly to um, offset the cost of increased environmental and social um, burdens. We're finally waking up to the fact that those need to be paid for somehow and carbon taxation and all of the stuff that's coming in terms of um, consumer awareness, it's driving that. So it's really interesting and it could well lead to a big rebalancing in commodity prices upward, which may be what we were talking about earlier with regard to copper. Well, I think, Mark, you know, the finance sector is one of the big drivers behind this. So um, they'll obviously find a way to um, reflect this in, in cost of capital and valuation multiples. And the better performers will get the cheaper cost of capital. They'll have the better valuation multiples. And, uh, um, you know, I imagine that's how it will boil down to from that point of view. Um, I think 
one of the winners out of this decarbonisation um, um, paradigm shift is is going to be the nuclear sector um, because that is uh, you know a low carbon source of energy. Um, certainly, if you're listening to the uranium companies, um, they're they're very very bullish about the future. Um, I, I just wanted to sort of ask you. I mean, it's not one of the minerals you said you, you cover at the moment, but um, um, is all uranium the same in terms of its CO two footprint? So. I imagine some uranium's greener than others from a certain point of view. <laughs> That's a really interesting question because no one really thinks about green uranium. Um, but yeah, there'll be, and, and I'll be honest, Paul, I haven't quantified um, uranium in that way. Um, we just haven't looked at uranium yet. But um, there will be big differences, for instance, between um, something mined underground in Canada and something that's um, leached in situ in Kazakhstan. It's going to have a very different energy footprint. Um, but all of that probably is m massively offset by the um, energy generated, the low CO2 energy generated by that uranium when it gets into a reactor. Uh, I know there's lots of concern about the other environmental issues around um, disposing of nuclear waste and you know, the, the, the lifetime carbon footprint of a nuclear reactor. But even so, um, it, it's, um, it does seem that, yes, ur the uranium should reap a massive benefit from this ultimately. Um, but, of course, um, nuclear power has always been a, a very um, hot potato, as it were, politically, hasn't it? <laughs> Yeah. I think the I think the term would be radioactive potato. <laughs> Very hot potato, yes. Let's take it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a different tack, uh, but we have to ask while you're here. Uh Mark, uh you've done some work uh comparing uh crypto and uh mining emissions. Yes, I, I did. Um and um it's a really interesting um question actually, because if you look at um if you look at Bitcoin and uh if you assume, say, a Bitcoin value of um, $50,000, um, and I know, I mean, there's a fair amount of range on that, as you're probably aware, um, from day to, well, minute to minute, actually. It's, a relative, it's pretty volatile for a, a, a safe haven asset, I would say. Um, if, you, if you look at that um, in terms of the CO2 emissions, and um, there's been quite a lot um, written recently about how much electricity gets used in Bitcoin mining. And uh, the numbers I came up with is that um, in terms of dollar value, um, a, a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, um, the CO2 emissions from that are around 2.2, um, 2.3 kilograms of CO, CO2 per dollar of, of value of Bitcoin. If you look at gold on the same basis, so a dollar's worth of gold you'll be emitting um, 0.5 kilograms of CO2 on average. So if you take all of the formal sector gold mines in the world and um, uh, add up their carbon emissions, which we do, and divide that by um, um, uh, the, the dollars of revenue created, you get 0.5. So it's, it's a difference of a, a, um, a factor of um, five times thereabouts. Um, so gold is five times less carbon intensive per dollar value, if that makes sense to, to, you, to you guys. However, 
if Bitcoin is going to $200,000, obviously, that would actually balance out almost. It provided gold stayed roughly where it, where it is right now. So it's quite an interesting relative value question. And I haven't figured out another way of, 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 of comparing the two assets, unless you guys have got any bright ideas. If I was in mining, I would be careful about making that uh, comparison. Um, it's, um, you know, crypto has only been around since uh, 2009. And, uh, you know, when they had that paper that was produced by Satoshi. And now we're talking about uh, Bitcoins being at 50,000. And you look at the mind share that that's captured right now. It's just software. It's just an algorithm. They can design something else the way that it just happened to be built. Uh, and, you know, how could you foresee this when you're publishing this paper in 2009, that it would have this much of an impact and then that you would be consuming this much energy to do that statement of work. These things can be redesigned and there has been cryptos that have actually been redesigned that you can actually, you know, use far less amounts of energy. Uh, there's just different ways of actually configuring these things. You know, if there was some type of regulation on these, uh, you could see that uh, the industry could very quickly come back with a green or an echo type of Bitcoin that you could actually kind of continue to meet this need because the need is there. And it's, it's a again, it's a caution because Bitcoin, cryptos, they can make this turn, I believe, probably very quickly on a dime. Whereas when you're talking about mining, uh, you know, we're certainly more constrained uh, in terms of what uh, our impact is going to be and uh, what it is, uh, despite that the work uh, that we're doing right now. I, th I think that's absolutely spot on, uh, Michael, as, uh, as a comment. And um, given the massive um, volatility in or potential volatility in the Bitcoin price, and as you say, the potential um, volatility in its energy intensity, um, it could shift radically in either direction. Obviously, if if the Bitcoin price went down to uh, ten thousand bucks, then Bitcoin would be uh, massively um, more energy intensive than than gold on the metrics that we were just talking about. But yeah, absolutely correct. Completely agree with you. Let's turn to our number of the week. Mark, we always start with a guest. What's your number? Okay, so my number of the week is that um, this week, the global mining industry emitted around 30 million tons of um, carbon dioxide, which is um, on an annual basis. It's somewhere similar to either Japan or Russia, the, those country totals. Um, so, as it stands right now, the mining industry is ranking equivalent to one of the top 10 economies globally in terms of its CO2 emissions. And the crazy thing is that's going to have to reduce massively and get down to zero over the next few decades using technology which is not yet fully um, uh, developed uh, at a cost that we don't really know yet. But I'm convinced it's going to happen and it's going to be a really interesting, um, it's going to be a really interesting journey getting there. Um, and that was my number. How Paul, big a diamond would that be? 
<laughs> that would be a pretty huge. That would probably be a diamond the size. Well, I don't know. It'd be the size of a, a large island, wouldn't it? Really, you could um, <laughs> set up an offshore tourist resort on a giant diamond protruding from the sea. That would be. Paul, your number, please. Mine's probably, you guys know me, so it's probably an obvious one. $4.71. $4.71 per pound. Copper's um, broke its all-time high this week. Um, go copper. Thank you very much for uh, bringing back uh, the metrics in uh, pounds, uh, Paul. Uh, Niels, what's your number of the week? Um, I Paul, I see your copper, and I raise you 6.5%. Uh, um, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, weekly gain on silver this week. Um, shot up, you know, above, uh, uh, $27, uh, announced nowhere near record highs, but it's best weekly gain since December. Um, so yeah, so that's my number. Uh, once again, I have to correct Paul and Niels because the actual number of the week is a double. Once again, that's a double, and that goes back to uh, the uh, major story of this week. Uh, the 2020 annual report from CITL, the world's largest battery manufacturer, shows that it sold 47 gigawatts per hour of batteries. That is double from 2018. Once again, that is double from 2018. And that number comes courtesy to us from BMO. That's it for us. Mark, is there any news that we should look for from SCARN over the next 12 months? Uh, lots more coverage in terms of other ESG issues and lots of forecasting um, and hopefully coming up with some interesting stories about how this is all progressing um, and hopefully, hopefully some evidence that it, you know mining companies are reducing their carbon footprints um, it will happen Reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McRae. That's uh, McRae with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. And Paul told us that he has a new Twitter handle. Paul, what is that? CGS 2021 Gold. CGS 2021 Gold. Reach out to Paul at that handle. And Mark, how would you like people to get a hold of you? Um, visit our website, which is um, scarnassociates.com. And you'll uh, be able to contact us through that. If you like what you hear, if you've liked what you've heard, uh, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe through iTunes. As always, your suggestions are welcome. Please reach out and tell us. Mark, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Kickle Roundtable. I am your host, Michael McRae. And on behalf of Paul Harris, Niels Christensen, and Mark Fellows, have a pleasant weekend.